You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of crafting one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. Hi, my name is Tom Pinchuk, and I wrote the graphic novel Remember Andy Zenon. A man of duality, Tom Pinchuk has charted the adventures of world-famous kid heroes like Cartoon Network's Ben 10 and Mattel's Max Steel, while also crafting mature audience comics for Heavy Metal Magazine, among other outlets. His recent graphic novel, Remember Andy Xenon, may reconcile these contradictions at last. Tom has written for television, comics, and everything in between, and before moving to Los Angeles, dwelled everywhere from Singapore to Syracuse. He delights in obstacle races, escape rooms, and in masterminding increasingly elaborate April Fool's Day pranks. Awesome powers? Adventures all over the world? Andy Xenon was the boy hero every kid wished they could be. But then he turned 18, and those powers vanished. No more adventures. What happened? Why? Never getting any explanations, Andy resigned to life as a normal guy. And it's a quiet misery. Nobody believes he used to be Andy Xenon. People have moved on to new adventurers, and each year, fewer even remember Andy at all. But one person hasn't forgotten. A journalist has tracked Andy down for a soul-searching interview. At last, he can set the record straight, review his reckless youth with hard-earned wisdom, and maybe figure out what went wrong. Is it too late for answers, or can Andy earn a second chance? I've written in comics and animation over the past few years, and I've written on a number of Kid Hero franchises like Ben 10, Max Steel, and Gourmeti, which is more popular in Europe, but is a pretty big hit there. Obviously, there's limitations on what you can do in a show that's uh, intended for kids. And so sometimes there are certain ideas that get left on the table, meaning that we're not going to show the characters growing up. In a case like, for instance, with Ben 10, there's a lot of conceits that are built into the show. So it's built around him being on an endless summer vacation. And then also that him having a secret identity is a real non-issue. And that was something that was very pointedly discussed in the Bible for the show, was just that they wanted to maintain the sense of escapist fantasy that no one's ever going to really look twice and say, oh, hey, wait, wait a minute, is that Ben 10? So it's something that's pointedly left uncovered. And you do wonder when you're a writer on the show, what would it be like if we did explore that? The other part of it was these brands have been around for 10 plus years at this point, in some cases almost 20, and they're not ones that I grew up with, but there are a generation of fans who did. Part of the appeal for them was that the characters would age along with the viewers. Ben would become a teenager when the audience was becoming teenagers. That's fun, that's engaging. I know that Harry Potter has a similar conceit as well. The problem with that is when that goes along after maybe too many years, it starts to drift from what the show's supposed to be or who the target demographic is supposed to be. So if it's aimed at 10-year-olds and the main character is in his 20s, that's at odds. So there are these inevitable reboots which really have to happen. And the audience has sort of a crossroads about whether they want to stick around with that or if they feel that they've aged out of the property too. I think that had happened to me with different properties growing up as well. And there have been different stories where you age out of a target demo and like I say, you, you figure out if you're going to stick around with it or not. And if you do, you have to accept that the characters are never going to grow up along with you. But it got me thinking, what if the character did grow up? What if the kid heroes did grow up? And what if they felt like they'd aged out? The more I thought about that, the idea really spoke to me and it was something that I thought was really fascinating as a metaphor, really, for what it's like to grow up, what it's like to feel like you maybe were special at a certain age, and now you're, you know, the world's kind of moved on from you. I think there was a lot of right potential for all that sort of stuff. And also to kind of hit the other interest that I'd had about just simply telling stories that we couldn't really do in the confines of a major TV kid show. That had been germinating in my mind for a long time. I hadn't really figured out what was the best venue to do it for. And then a few things overlapped. Like everybody, I think the pandemic sort of maybe pushed you in one direction and the fork in the road of your life. In that case, I had a lot of time at home just to reflect on things and also think about the idea. I really wanted to tell a story in comics form. I also worked in comic books and the industry was going through a disruption at that moment. And it was something where I was trying to find ways of, okay, how can I still do what I like to do, even though the business is in a state of uncertainty at that moment? 
I really wanted to have a simpler project. I wanted to scale it back a little bit and, and make something where there wasn't as big of a risk or there weren't as many departments that had to sign off on the thing and there wasn't going to be as long of a journey as there would be for a TV show to get in front of an audience. I really wanted to get back to, hey, I've got something really cool and I want to share it with you and I want people to enjoy it without all the steps in the way that also without the guarantees that it's ever going to go in front of an audience either. So with all that in mind, they all coalesced at the same time and I thought, well, this could be great. We could do a really tight focused graphic novel with this idea that I think was really a emotionally resonant one and also one that I think had enough interest since I had worked on shows like this and so I could say I'm an expert on this type of character and an expert on this type of genre but now I want to do something for the audience that had grown up like the young adult fans of this type of character and we are going to do something specifically for teens and up. When I first moved to LA it was right around when the recession had happened and I was working different day jobs while I was trying to break into the industry. I was working at a Toys R Us, actually, at a seasonal job, and it was a very uniquely LA situation, or uniquely Hollywood situation, of selling action figures based on cartoon characters whom I knew the creators of and was corresponding with and wound up working with fairly soon thereafter. There was this interesting moment that I keep facing every day where someone will be checking out with these toys and you'd want to say, well, just so you know. And then I realized they don't care. They're not going to believe you. This is not the place to do it. That was a moment in my life of very clearly having something that's so close and yet so far. That was a central image that I felt like had to be in this type of story because the premise of it being Andy had been this young adventurer and he'd been having all these fun escapades as a child before he really was old enough to appreciate what he had and before he did, it's all gone. He tells him I'm Andy Zenon and no one believes him. He's working at a department store and he's selling merchandise starring his old friends that he knew when he was in the adventuring community and no one believes him even then and he has no way to contact them and so it just seemed to line up out of all of the scenes that i have in the story that was the most clear in my mind i think when i was first going down with my notebook and writing out my ideas was to say what would be a, a really poignant situation for that type of character I always keep my notebook handy. It's a moleskin and I have my selection of pens and I find that if the muse calls, you really just have to follow it as far as you can while there's that initial burst of inspiration. So I just filled up pages and pages and pages, uh, furiously scratching it out. By the end, it felt very fully formed. From there, I had worked with a really fantastic artist from Athens, Greece. His name is Nikos Kautsis, and we'd had a number of pitches for comics and graphic novels that we've been working on over the years, and we were actually about to take out one that was a very ambitious graphic novel series, but then there was disruption with the industry, and a lot of the editors that we knew at different companies had been laid off, and it really didn't seem the right time to take that route with that project. I pitched to him this idea, which was more focused and smaller than the one we had, and he liked it a lot, and it resonated with him. I wrote an outline and ran it by him. In comparison to other media, I think the aphorism I keep going back to with comics is that space is the enemy, meaning that you really don't have a lot of space, really. You can't just go on, and you, you have to find the most focused version of the story you're doing, whether it's on the page or in the book. The comparison I always like to make is that it's sort of like poetry to prose in terms of visual storytelling, just because you have to find five images that can represent a scene as opposed to whatever the math would be, maybe like what 5,000 if it were in a TV show or a film. That was always the imperative, which is trying to keep that sort of poetic focus of we're not going to be doing a multi-part series. This is not going to be something that's going to be a huge sprawling epic. We really just wanted to distill a lot of potential storytelling into a very concentrated form. And the, the operative thesis I had the whole time was that there have been 499 prior adventures or issues of Andy Xenon prior to this, but this is the most important one. We wanted to give glimpses of all of those and to also give the sense that there had been a lot of history behind this, but not make anybody feel like they had to do homework or they'd missed out on anything. That was a fun challenge creatively. I guess that's where it started for sure. But so again, space is the enemy. So often with comics, you have periodicals that have to be 22 
pages, there isn't the wiggle room that you have on a TV show where it could be 22 minutes or it could be 24 or it could be 21. It has to be exactly 22 pages most times. And in fact, when you get into working with printers, often they'll say it has to be in increments of eight. So you have to figure out, well, what is exactly going to be on each of those pages? You, you can't say, I'm just going to do one less page. Very important in comparison to other media that I work with to have a lot of planning going in because I don't want to be in the situation where I run out of space and then I have to cut things that would have been more valuable or it's going to be a lot more difficult to do at that point. Or if I fall short and then you have a lot of room to pad and it's not going to feel as tight. So what I always do is I'll write the outline first and it's really not that polished, but then I do what I call page breakdowns, which is where I'll take the outline and I'll divide it up into bullet points and just say, this happens on page one, this happens on page two, this happens on page three, because it's important to know what the pacing is going to be going in. Then after that, and I, after I've made that work, I do another pass for panel breakdowns. So in a comic, you have an individual page that's, you'd call it a layout of panels, meaning that let's say you have page seven and there are five panels in it, right? Each smaller frame that you have a scene or a moment or what have you. I also think it's important to do that because often a mistake that writers will make if they've come from other disciplines, if they write for prose or if they write for screen, is they vastly overestimate how much you can fit on a page. There's going to be way too much dialogue. There's going to be way too many panels. And instead of it having the right rhythm and giving the art enough breathing room, it feels crowded and almost suffocating under how much has tried to have been stuffed into there. I think it's important to do the panel breakdowns ahead of time. And it's a lot easier to make adjustments at that stage because if I figure out that, well, if I have eight panels on page 11 and I decide during this process that that's too much and I should split it up. So maybe I have four panels on page 11 and four panels on page 12. It's better to make that decision at this stage before I've invested too much time into writing it out and certainly well before the artist has spent time trying to figure out how that's gonna work logistically during illustration. So I do that and then I do another pass to actually script it. I find I have a tendency to get very detailed with my scene descriptions and I'm always trying to hold back the temptation to get too detailed. So I'll often just do a pass on dialogue first and then try to go back over in one fell swoop just to cover the scene descriptions to make sure I'm only focusing on what's important and what's relevant. I do that and then by that stage, the comic strip will resemble a screenplay, except that I do say it at the start of each page, I'll say, Page one, five panels. Panel one, Andy does this. Panel two, Andy does that. Page two, three panels, and, and so on. But it's important to, to mark all those. That's what you'd call a full script. There are some comics that get made with just a plot outline. It depends on the relationship you have with the artist. My attitude is always it's better to start with too much in terms of planning than to start with too little and have to figure things out later and potentially pad things. So I always put the proviso to any artist I'm working with that I'm certainly open to suggestions about where you think this could go. If you wanna add a panel, if you wanna subtract a panel with the script, I trust your artistic intuition. Let's just have that conversation rather than dictating that it has to be exactly as I've laid out. There are no technical limitations on how many panels you can have per page. I think the conventional wisdom that I've run into both from my own work and comparing notes with other comics creators is that you want to aim for about three to six panels per page. And if there's going to be less, it needs to be something that deserves that. It's either like a really big explosive moment or you're establishing a scene and you want to have that grandeur of the scenery. If you want to do more than six, then you have to adjust the dialogue to fit that. So if it is a dialogue scene, you don't want to have as much in a given panel because it may crowd out the characters because they just by simple math, you have less space. That takes a bit more logistics. It has a lot of storytelling potential because if you want to have a sense of a claustrophobic scene or there is a sense of drawing out a moment where it may not even have any dialogue, but you want to show more of the individual steps say like instead of you know if you have like water dripping off of an icicle and you feel like there's going to be some dramatic 
artistic value to seeing all the steps of that drawn out as if it's in going in slow motion, then you can add more panels and that can really have a lot of impact storytelling wise. So there's nothing technically that's going to prevent you from loading panels. I just think that it's often been a pitfall that I see people run into where they have too much going on on the page and it's just not as aesthetically pleasing and it's not as smooth of a reading experience because you're not having art and text complement each other. They're competing with each other at that point. On the opposite end, I think that I could also tell if the script maybe hasn't had as much thought behind it and there's not really as much going on on the page. You may have less panels and there's less kind of intention behind them, which can be valid, but to my personal taste, I don't find that as interesting because then to me it feels it feels like it's designed to be kind of flipped through quickly rather than something that's to be savored and really picked apart. That gets into matters of artistic taste, but I think what I tell my students with this program is that I think what's important is that whenever you're setting out as a writer is you want to be aware of what resonates with you and what works with you and what excites you as a reader and try to articulate that as best you can and reflect that in your own work. That's something that I've found is that the comics that I've enjoyed the most are the ones that have complexity to the images. It's not, you know, there's things going on in the foreground and the middle ground and the, and the background and... There are subtle details that you might not notice the first time, and then when you go back over it, you do notice them, and it deepens your understanding of what you just read. And I think you get there through a very careful balance on each page. So I, I don't know if that works as well, again, if, it's, if there are too many panels, and there's also a lot of dialogue, and it gets crowded out. That also won't work. There is such a thing as too much complexity. So it's always this interesting tension between word and image, between detail and simplicity, all of those sorts of disciplines that are part of the challenge of executing a story well is finding those balances. There is a rule of thumb that I use for each panel, which was explained to me as the 2550 rule, meaning that if you have a word balloon, which is the character speaking, you don't want to have more than 25 words per balloon. And then you also don't want to have more than 50 per panel. So that's a good rule of thumb to keep your dialogue more taut and to keep it from getting overly wordy and trying to make it more punchy. I'm sure there are plenty of editors, they think about that all the time, but even though I did basically edit this project myself, it wasn't something I really checked the way I did with the article. I did that over the summer of 2020, that I wrote this in about three drafts, and I had a really good selection of friends that I could call on to just run each draft by and get their suggestions from. I thought it was important that we really had the scripts ironed out in every respect because if I were working, say, on a company-owned title, I may need to produce this monthly and there's less time for revision. And so I wanted this to be something that would take advantage of the more generous lead time we had with it and really refine everything and make sure everything was tight and was just as detailed or as intricate as we wanted it to be. One thing that I wanted to do for this was to increase the sense of reality to the story by having a faux article about Andy Zenon in the back. And a lot of graphic novels I've liked, like Watchmen, have a lot of what they call back matter in the book, meaning that maybe the main feature is a comic, but then attached you have faux magazine interviews or excerpts of a biography or fake ads in the world. And if done right, if you if you treat it as something you're trying to tell a story with rather than just dry exposition, I think that can be very compelling and can really deepen your appreciation as a reader. And it's something that I wanted to do with this. I was noodling with whether we were going to do it or not, but then I decided to go through with it because initially we were trying to fit this into 22 pages. That was not going to happen. <laughs> so, and then with each successive draft, I realized, and especially after talking to Nikos and listening to his concerns as an artist, that it then went to 26 and then it went to 32 because we needed to give it some breathing room. As tight as we wanted to make it, it would have felt very truncated if we made it that short. And so as a result, then we were expanding the size of the book and then we had more room to fit in a feature like that. And I said, well, why don't we go all the way with it? Because often 
in a graphic novel project, those pages might be devoted to pinups by friends who are illustrators. They may just do art of the characters. There were a lot of other artists that I wanted to involve, who I'd wanted to work with and had been friends of mine. And I was trying to think of a good way to involve them. It wasn't as interesting for me to do it through pinups, but if we had them do pinups that related to a text feature and making that a, a different kind of balance of word and image, that was very exciting to me. So a pinup is just a piece of art. It's a full size, just one page devoted to an entire illustration. It comes from the era of magazines, I guess where the nomenclature comes, but the idea being that you'd rip it out of a magazine and then you would pin it up to your wall. Some people do that with art or maybe they do it for some other magazines, <laughs> but that's, that's my understanding of where that came from. But often you'll see these where there is just, it's art of the characters and it's done by friends who maybe, they're not going to be involved in a full extent, but they would still love to contribute. So they do a pinup and it's just a drawing of the character often open to more interpretation. I thought it'd be great to make it more like photos in a magazine featurette. And so that was something was really exciting to me. And in another life, I did do journalism. And that was a type of writing that I think was one I wanted to revisit with the project as well. And I thought it could be really compelling if done right to tell an additional story that would deepen and enhance what you had just read in the main feature. I think with any artistic ambition, it always starts with, okay, I'll just do this quickly. And then I find myself maybe four months later doing successive drafts and realizing that it grew in the telling. And then I, you know, it gets bigger and then you have to manage it from when it gets bigger. But I was very proud of how it turned out. That effectively became a comic within a comic or a book within a book in this case, because the initial draft I did of it was 15,000 words. And that was just way too long. We were not going to have room to fit that in and, and to do it in a way that would be balanced with the art. So I did call upon my friends to read those drafts and we scaled it back a bit. Tried to find the right balance because I did want it to feel, have enough heft and room, but I also didn't want it to be overwhelming. But we went from being a supplement to a project in itself. When you're editing your own work, I think the notion of drafts becomes a little more abstract because you're constantly tweaking even after you've officially submitted to yourself, basically, a draft. I think all in all, I did about four. It was three main ones, and then the fourth one was just to tweak and to polish. But what I always plan to do is rewrite the script after the artist has drawn everything. And I think that's an important thing to do because it's analogous to, say, dialogue or sound editing in film. You want to allow some latitude for the illustrators to do their thing. And they may amplify certain aspects of the scene or they may downplay certain aspects of the scene. I don't think it's great always to tell them to change that back. So often what can happen is I may have a character saying something and it's perfectly clear from the character's expression what they would have said. So it's not necessary to have that dialogue then reiterating what is already clear from the art. On the other hand, sometimes there are subtleties that get lost that you need to add a line to clarify about because it's not as clear in the art anymore. I've in fact like done it enough times that when I read any graphic novel, when I can tell that it's been adapted from a screenplay, it's often because the art either reiterates something that is already expressed through the dialogue or there is an incongruity between the two. We always kind of joked about that, that it's almost like you chuck a screenplay over a fence and then just say, all right, God, you go figure it out. And then you tell the artist to go do a lot of problem solving with it, which I don't think is the best process. I think communication is important for every step of a collaboration. When I would get the different stages of art from Nikos, and so initially he would do what were called thumbnails, which are just very simple doodles. It just shows you in very general terms what is going to be the layout of each page. And it's actually incomprehensible to somebody who hasn't read the script. I know what I'm seeing, but I've shown it to other people and it just looks like scratches. Because we did that, that's why we made the decision to increase the page count because there were a few pages in the thumbnails that were just too crowded and too busy and I knew it was going to be a problem. And it's important to have those discussions at that stage because it's a lot more investment of time and effort later on if I were to try to change that after he had done fully rendered illustrations. 
then after we've approved the thumbnails or I've said let's go ahead with them, he'll go on and do pencil art. So he'll draw the pages, but it won't be as tight as they will be when they're inked. Both of those terms I'll just mention are a little more abstract these days because he's working entirely with digital instruments. It's all with a, a stylus and a pad. He did learn how to draw though with pencils and pens. So he still takes the same approach. So there will be a pass that he treats as if it were pencils. And then there's another pass that he treats as if it were inks. Since I'm basically editing the project, when he sends me the pencils, then I give notes and I say, okay, I don't know if this is clear. Maybe let's, this face maybe doesn't fit too much. Let's, we forgot there's a, some consistency problems here where, where the characters are in the scene that maybe we have to sort out. So circling back to what I was saying before is it's important to recognize the latitude of everybody's creative contributions because while I do think it's, it's good to give creative license, there are also other concerns where I think everybody needs to have a second set of eyes to say, okay, we've lost track of something here, or this is unclear, let's clear this up. But those are usually more tweaks than big changes at that stage, because the big changes get brought up at the thumbnail stage. Nikos's contributions in this case ended at inking. He illustrates the pages and then he renders them in black and white. Then he hands the baton after that point to the colorist, and we found a really fantastic colorist to work on this from Spain, whose name is Eva de la Cruz, and she did some excellent work on this, really, really excellent. And in fact, I think she was the linchpin in the whole process to make everything feel consistent because we had a number of narrative devices that were supposed to delineate the scenes in the present day when Andy's getting interviewed with the scenes in the past that we wanted to look like Polaroids. There was a very pointed design aesthetic we were trying to have with them with rounded edges to the panels and the colors are saturated but also a bit faded out or washed out as if they've been in the sun too long and so there and maybe some grain in them as well and her role in that was really instrumental because we thought clarity was absolutely important because we're jumping around the timeline so much so she worked on those. I wish we could have given them to her in order, but she also had to work on them out of order, which was another challenge. And I really appreciated her patience throughout that whole process because again, it's like trying to stay on model when you don't have the model sheet already. Because of the, the schedule that we had, Nikos worked on the pages, I think in order of which ones he found easiest and most challenging or whichever ones excited him most first. So as a consequence, Ava might have been working on page 17 before she worked on page 14 might be the next one after which is not ideal because we want to keep a consistency of tone in my role as the editor for this giving her instructions about coloring as well just to make sure that my vision was communicated to her about that and keeping that consistent nikos i think he was drawing it i want to say fall 2020 and he wrapped towards the end of that year and Ava started coloring them with a bit of overlap, I'd say towards later into fall of 2020 and then finished about early 2021. And so then the next step after that was bringing on a letterer. In this case, it was a larger world, which is a studio I've worked with a lot and they do really fantastic lettering and graphic design. I was working with Troy Petrie and Dave Lanfear, both there, and I brought them on and they handled actually a, a, a number of duties on this because first they did the lettering which is where you go back over the art and the letterer will use graphic design skills to design the balloons and it's not just as simple as just putting text there and picking the right font there really is a lot of craft to it what's the design that's really going to lead the eye in a seamless way in a panel what font will reflect the story or the tone of the story is there a certain design to lettering that if we're, say, having, maybe we have an alien character in the story that we want to convey a sense of otherworldliness? Do we use a different font? Do we use a different color? A lot of those questions. And so you really want to work with someone who's a professional. I think I've seen a lot of comics as well where they may have really fantastic art, but they don't put as much care into the lettering and it just almost undercuts everything. 
So they were really essential to have involved and I gave them the script and if they had notes that came up when I would get the passes on lettering, I would also give those notes to see if they worked or not. And sometimes again, I think it's important to keep critically thinking about the process in the same way I did with adjusting the script according to the art. So sometimes I'll get the lettering back and say, you know what, this is looking too wordy, let's just cut that line. Or maybe let's move this balloon to this next panel because it makes it flow a bit better. They also did the design for the logo. It was something that I had some ideas for it. Along with the Polaroid theme, I wanted this to feel like you had unearthed this from some storage locker. Like maybe you come across some old VHS tapes or you come across a photo album. So I wanted it to look like the logo had been made with a label maker. So if you look at it, there is a bit of texture to it that makes them seem like the, the text is raised and that it's been affixed with scotch tape on the cover. And I thought that was really critical to convey the feel and the tone of what we wanted with the story. And the real line share of A Larger World's involvement was when Dave handled the article because that was all graphic design. I gave him the manuscript for the article and then I gave him the art that we had made for that. I kept referring to them as photos. And in fact, that when you look over it, I credit the artists as photographers with each piece because I really did want to convey the sense that these were stock photos that had been found by some journalists and were now being edited by whoever was editing this magazine and we did want it to feel like it was an excerpt from a magazine there's just it's a lot of you can kind of go as far as you want to in terms of like the headspace of like role playing of like okay if this were a real magazine with a real editor with the real release date what well, how would all of that work he was fantastic to work with there was a lot of storytelling decisions that we made with the graphic design that i i thought were important to convey so for instance if you go through it the pages go from white to black by the end and they get to convey that it's getting subtly, it's like a setting sun. So the idea being that there's initial optimism about what's being discussed with Andy's career that gets progressively grimmer with the outlook of that, the journalist concluding that he must be dead. That's not something that's typical with comic. It's not that everyone will do a back matter feature like that, but I thought it was important to. And again, I don't think it was going to be as successful if I just, again, chucked the manuscript over the fence and said, you go figure it out. So I, I presented and said, here are some of my ideas. This is what I want to get across narratively with this. I think this is going to enhance the mood at certain points. See what you can work with. And thereafter, I would get presented with some, I guess prototype's not really the right word, but he would, you know, he would show me like a version of it, like a draft of it that he did that was a little more involved, I think then it was as a first pass it was really and then i would advise about tweaking certain things and say okay let's let's maybe use this font or let's change this caption underneath this photo because it's a little too wordy but that was a really fun one to do it just was a lot of work and i know that when dave got done with it he was even when he was tweeting to support the book he said i worked really hard on this feature and i hope you all appreciate that and i said thanks dave i appreciate you going with me <laughs> all that way I think it's essential to get second opinions because you will be intimately involved with these characters and you understand all of the world because it's in your head. But when you run it by somebody else, there will be things that aren't clear and you do need to clear them up. I think in this case, most of them understood what I was going for. Maybe it's because we had a lot of the same pop cultural touch points. I think what did need to be cleared up was the timeline of Andy's life because throughout the story there is this recurring conceit that we have that you see him at age 14, age 15, age 17. The framing device of the story is that he's getting interviewed for a podcast about his life. I still wanted to make sure that you can see, okay, he's 13 in this panel now he's 17 in this panel, he looks a little different. And then you can chart those differences. And then also in the backup feature is called We Remember Andy Zenon. And it's written as long form journalism that's about the 10 year period where people thought Andy just vanished or he was dead. And it's written by somebody with a very personal connection to him or perceived one who wants to find out what happened to him. And so it's a lot of reviewing of old tapes and old featurettes on him before trying to weave together this narrative of maybe what happened. 
and there's also interviews with different adventurers who were contemporaries of his, and each one has a different opinion of him. I think that one, I had more input from the beta readers because it was a lot more of a concern to get that timeline straight because you are trying to create a greater sense of verisimilitude that this is a real article that is referring to real events as a real magazine would. And as a result of that, sometimes I thought I had it all straight, but then you run it by somebody else and they point out some contradictions and you're like, oh no, uh, well, okay, let me rewrite that now to make, make sure that this all feels continuous. And that was very useful. That feature also involves all of the guest artists. And I think one of the biggest challenges of the book was going back to what I was saying earlier that I wanted this to feel like issue number 501, even though it's the only issue and there's not going to be a follow-up. You want to keep all of the guest art, what's called on model, which is more of a term in animation. But the idea just being that you have artists with varying styles and varying approaches, but you want to make sure it looks like they're all depicting the same character. So... That was tricky to do because we didn't have a model sheet. I had done some sketches early on. I draw, but not professionally. I, I realized I don't have a temperament for that. There were tweaks that we had to do at those stages, which was more difficult than I think it would have been otherwise, just because we were doing this often out of order and somewhat piecemeal. So you're having someone drawing a scene of Andy at one section of his life before you've depicted him in an earlier section of his life and you're trying to say okay so just reverse engineer this from how we're depicting it here trying to keep everybody consistent and oftentimes it was just a matter of well I don't have the model here but I'll try to describe it verbally about what it's going to look like. One quote that I reach for a lot of times that didn't quite apply to comics but gets used for movies is that movies are never done they escape. In this case I could have kept tweaking, especially because I was also editing the book too, and that's part of the reason that there often isn't an editor who's separate from the writer, is because I think as the creative involved, you just always want to keep tweaking your vision, and at a certain point someone has to grab you by the wrist and say, enough, we're done. The last finishing steps on all of this were, we did what are called variant covers in comics, because there is an element of collectability that there isn't, I think, in, as much in prose. There were some bigger name artists who we were friends with that we wanted to do variant covers, meaning that you may find one edition, it's the exact same interior, it's just it's a different cover by someone who's a big name artist. So in this case, we got two and that was later in the process because I didn't think it'd be useful to bring the project to them if it was incomplete in terms of trying to persuade somebody to be involved. So that was a later process. I swear we were doing copy corrections on the article very late into the process, which is again another reason where it's like, why did I take this on when I could have just done a 32-page comic and been done with it? And then the last step is the really unsexy stuff, but it, it depends on uh, what, what everybody's capacity for it is, but that's called production. What it means is when you get into printing, there are a lot of terms that you now have to consider, like live area and trim line and bleed, which is accommodating for the fact that when you print this, even if you have art that goes all the way to the end of the page, it may get trimmed off. It may be cut off when it's printed. You also want to make sure that there is a zone where everything that's important is there and there's no risk of it getting cut off versus some stuff that you may want to push the edges but you won't cry if it's trimmed off a little bit. That was an additional step that Dave had to do. It was also because the printer that we then got involved with had slightly different page specs than ones he was used to and that's really where the devil in the details comes in because it's just Sometimes talking about a quarter of an inch or less a matter's difference, but it can really make a world of difference. So he then had to do a pass to basically master those files and make sure everything worked with printing, because otherwise that would be awkwardly at an odd angle that would just undercut everything. But we got referred to this company, Zoop, that had just started. It was some staff who'd been at other comics companies and we got involved with them and they were really great. Eric Moss and Jordan Plosky over there, really fantastic people. And they had a vision about how to get this to readers and to go more directly to stores as well. 
And what was great about it too was that they were perfectly fine with just, they liked how the book looked. There wasn't going to be any creative oversight at that point. It was just, they said, we can tell this is up to professional standard. We can tell that this works. No notes from us. Let's figure out how we can get this out there in the world. Along that way, I suppose maybe like the last, last step, you get into the parts that are really creatively fulfilling or just it's great to be done with something that it's always about advertising. You have to start putting on that cap and figuring out how you want to market the book. And there were a lot of creators that I admired that I was hoping I could get a pull quote from or an endorsement from. So to say just, hey, you know, this is the greatest book. Tom's awesome. You should read it. Put that on the, the back cover. So I cobbled together a review copy on a Dropbox link, and then I just started reaching out to people that I knew. It's always going to be framed in the context of the pandemic, I suppose, just because these were all people that I would see at a convention on a fairly regular basis. I go to a lot of conventions, or did, I suppose, during uh, normal times, and now I'm reaching out to them through email, and it might have been a year or more since I'd seen them face-to-face, -face, so you're hoping they still remember your name. But I got some quotes, and Zoop was able to reach out to some creators I didn't know and get us some really good quotes, and I was really just flattered that people dug the book, and they liked it enough they were willing to lend their name to it. And we got a really good collection of quotes that I then wanted to incorporate into the back cover, so after all of the interiors have been made, I worked on that. I designed the credits masthead for the book, which was in the inner cover and just listing everybody's names and writing out the indicia, which is all the like boring legal information at the bottom and the thanks where I thanked all my beta readers, which I think was important to do. And then writing the bio page, which was like the inner back cover. And then on the, then on the, outer back cover was where I would put the synopsis and just a brief description of the genre and what the intended audience was and so on. But it was kind of a great situation to be in because we wanted that to make that eye grabbing. And initially there was a longer version of the synopsis there, but then I realized, well, where are the quotes going to go? So <laughs> I scaled back the synopsis a lot. It's really just couple sentences about the book to make room for the endorsements. And it was really fantastic. It was a lot of people that I admired for years. And some of them I even admired as a kid that were endorsing the book. And so it was something that really made it feel like coming full circle in this case. And that was a really wonderful step. So I think that was the last, last page, just because there were a lot of aspects of that that I just couldn't do until the book was done. Have everything done, or at least as close to done as we could get it before we did that stage. I think that was when we finally just, you know, you, you say, okay, it's done. It's done. Sending it off, gave all the files to Zoop and put it on their server. And then they started to interface with the printer and getting it to people who ordered the book. I always think about this one time that I interviewed with a video game company for a job position. And they asked me, what's the, what's your favorite part of writing? And what's your least favorite part? Or what's the part you don't like about writing? And I think they were a little startled by how quickly I answered the questions because when I said, what's the part I don't like about writing? And I said, writing outlines and synopses because you're writing a book report often for a book you haven't written yet. And it just, it's taking any of the fun out of the process. Absolutely. The most exciting part of it to me is you have a character that you've come up with and it feels like that character's taken life. And there's different steps of that because there's the initial step of just having a collaborator interpret what you've written and that character taking shape literally and developing, you know, seeing it through somebody else's eyes. In this case, I had done sketches of Andy and a, a few other characters in the story and Nico's vastly improved upon them, but he, he kept the spirit of what I doodled initially. And that's always the part that's just just it feels like you're seeing your imagination is running wild in front of you or, you know, taking a physical form. And then I think each step along the way is an expansion of that. So there's the initial step of Nikos doing his version of Andy. And then there's the step of getting the guest artists involved and they work off of that. And you start to see this character that I've created is interpreted by different artists and having different styles and, and taking on more dimensionality that way. And then there's the step of it going in front of an audience. And that's always the most exciting part 
because you're now seeing people engage with characters as if they're real almost because they start talking about Andy as almost like he's a real person and that this part made them feel sad or they, they rooted for him at this point or they felt that the ending was surprising. It filled them with different emotions or they thought this part was funny and so on. I mean, that was also the step where we were sending it out for reviews and the really validating part of all that is you may intend certain things thematically or in subtext that you're not sure if the audience is going to pick up on it or not and there are some times where you have a good review where someone just totally gets it and they know exactly what you're going for and they're articulating it of course there will be bad reviews sometimes which you, know, you always have to then kind of go on the other end and say Ah, uh, you don't get it. You don't understand. Thankfully, in this case, I think all the reviews were really good, so I was happy with that. I have had bad reviews before, and so sometimes you have to learn to take the barbs as well as you take the praise. So I was drawing inspiration from a lot of comics and graphic novels over the years that had inspired me to get into creative writing in general and gave me a vision of what it would be like to do this as a professional and to circle back around years and years later and have some of those creators like what you're doing and give you the mark of approval there's no greater feeling it's just it's it's like those reviews times 10 it's it's something that it just feels very validating and that was really wonderful some of the quotes we had were from people who'd worked for marvel and dc creators who'd worked on star wars and on the x-men and batman and so on and so forth it was really great that they understood what i was going for and enjoyed it and were willing to co-sign on it and say this is good you should check it out that was really validating i think especially because i can very distinctly remember there being a few nights in the early days of the pandemic when this was all starting where you're just sort of, you know, I mean, I, I was luckily able to keep doing work. But, you know, I think everybody had those nights where you sort of stare at the ceiling and wonder what's happening next. And I had this cockamamie idea that I thought was coming from left field and was going to take a lot of effort to make it work. And by a few metrics, it has. And that's really been wonderful. And that's that's what's really been great to come along on the other end of that. When you write creatively, it's like one long process of ruining all your hobbies by making them work <laughs> so, or turning them into work. And so it, it went from being, well, there's a lot of comics that I like to then going back over them and trying to pick apart, well, what about the lettering did I like? What about the coloring did I like? What about the graphic design did I like? And trying to refine my tastes and sensibilities on that in such a way that I can articulate that more clearly. I think it's important to, in any collaborative medium, comics especially, but I would say it also applies to you know writing for film or for screen, to understand what the other jobs do. I don't think it will lead to the most successful product. Again, the example we always go back to is just like chucking the script over the fence because then you may come back and say, well, this isn't how I pictured it or this isn't what I wanted. And that's really on you than it more, that's really more on you than it is on the collaborator because you didn't convey what you wanted at the, pertinent stage. But I think it was useful to have gone through the process of learning those terms because I can speak to him in a certain jargon and shorthand that I wouldn't be able to if I only focused on writing. I also took it upon myself to say, I'm not expecting that I'm going to be a colorist. I'm not expecting that I'm going to be a letterer. I know graphic design to an extent, but I think it's useful to at least read up on these disciplines and maybe get some understanding of how they work so when I'm communicating with somebody that I'm delegating to the conversation is clearer. The advice that I give to anybody who comes to me for advice is to say that you need to think about what your golden ticket project is. I think a lot about say Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in terms of you get given this blank check or you get given a blank canvas and the project is whatever you want it to be. Something that I've learned is that there can be a lot of, to my mind, misspent energy. You may work in a genre or a medium for too long and lose sight of what excited you in the first place. And I definitely find over the years that there is a hierarchy of projects and not everyone is going to be the one that you're deeply in love with. But I think it's important not to lose sight of the ones that you are. And often I have found that people can tell. You want it by a reader and they can tell that you were very passionate about it, then that radiates to them. If they can tell that you did this under duress or if you did this for an assignment or to outsmart yourself or because you thought this is what was in and what was cool, 
people can tell that it's not coming from the purest place. I don't think it always has to, and there certainly is a whole industry of people who do that. But what I find interesting about whenever I pose that question to people, you would think that's a very obvious question, but most people I run that by can't give me an answer. They'll even say it's a very daunting question, and it's something that they, when they're put on the spot, they can't figure out what that is. And I think it's important to keep sight of that. Something that I've maybe related from teaching as well is that I don't believe in guilty pleasures in terms of entertainment because students will like a certain kind of show and be embarrassed to say that they do, or they'll put a proviso on it by saying that they're watching it ironically or that they're hate watching it or what have you. When I put by them, as I say, the makers of that show don't care if you're watching it ironically or earnestly, they only care that you're watching it. And you also maybe need to take a step back and realize how much time am I watching this versus the quote unquote respectable shows or the ones that I don't feel as embarrassed about. If the guilty pleasure outweighs the respectable show by a significant margin, I think you're in a process of denial and you maybe just need to be more honest about what you enjoy. You will do better if you just say, this is what I like, and this is what I like to make, and this is what I aspire to make, and this is what excites me. Because I think the alignment of that will be better for you and will be better for your audience. The reason I just bring this up is I run into it either in my class or I run into conventions a lot of times, especially when it comes to independent projects and publishing, where it's an odd conversation you have with somebody where they made a comic, let's say, in a certain genre, let's say, let's say superheroes, because that's what comes up most often in comics. And they've made a superhero project, and then you say, wow, this is really great. Like, would you want to write more superhero stories or write superhero stories for these companies? And they say, oh, no, 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 no I would never want to do that. I, are you kidding? Who want to, you know, I don't, I don't, you're saying I have to do that? And I, and I always, it's a very odd psychology that I run into because I ask them like, well, you just went through a lot of time and effort and probably money invested to make an audition piece for a genre you don't want to work in. They have a passion and they've done it and they've kind of outsmarted themselves in a weird way where they've said, I'm only just doing this as an exercise. And it's like, life's short. <laughs> you know, like if you're going to work on, you know, if you're going to work on something that you're going to go on a limb for, like make sure it's a, it's an idea that you're passionate about and it's in a genre you want to continue working in. Because I definitely found in a lot of the ways that art intersects with commerce in the ways that a writing career has to be navigated, you are judged by your body of work. It's kind of a fantasy I think people have sometimes that, oh, I'm going to do some stuff and I've sort of listened to maybe the wrong advice and I'm going to do stuff in a genre but I'm going to run it by an editor and executive who's going to recognize that I, I should be working in this other genre and that's what I really want to do. It's like you don't want to make it too difficult for somebody who's hiring you to understand what you do and what you want to do. That's a really unnecessary hurdle that a lot of people put in the road for themselves. It's, it's hard enough just to work in you know what, what you want to be doing and be passionate about. I think if you have an option where you get carte blanche and you're, you're doing things on your time, especially if it's an independent project, it ought to be reflecting what you really want to do. And so that's why I always go back to when I say, what's your golden ticket project? Because I think until people answer that question, if it's sort of like a vague idea, and you can always change what it would be. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's not something you have to be like writing a, a blood contract in <laughs> and saying that this is going to be what I do for the rest of my life. And it's always going to be this, but I think having a clear idea of what that is and, aligning what your efforts are towards that is going to be a much better use of your time than working on something that's like an exercise or something that you feel is your friends are going to approve of more than what you really want to do. That's the question I always pose to people is what's your golden ticket project? And it's a harder question than you'd think. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.